Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for April 2nd, 2023, for the Sunday of the Passion, also known as Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday where I often joke the church tries to do too much. The Sunday before Good Friday is, of course, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry when the crowds waved palms and shouted Hosanna, and so it's called Palm Sunday. It's also called the Sunday of the Passion, where we hear the story of Jesus' suffering and death read in the Gospel lesson. And in fact, in our lectionaries, our schedules of reading, we normally hear of Palm Sunday on the first Sunday of Advent to rejoice that Jesus comes to save us. So we hear the Palm Sunday texts on the first Sunday of Advent, and then we arrive on Palm Sunday, we hear of Jesus' suffering and death, which is why this Sunday is also called the Sunday of the Passion. And I really don't have any um, intel on, on why this Sunday serves double duty, other than that if people can't uh, make it to a Good Friday service, they hear the, uh, the story of the Passion read the Sunday before. But to be fair, because we read the, sun, the whole Passion account on the Sunday before, we only spend our Good Friday service on the seven last words of Christ. At any rate, our text for this podcast is Matthew 27, verses 11 through 66. 55 verses makes for a very long reading, and so rather than take it verse by verse with commentary, I'm going to take this reading section by section just point out one or two big points from each section. Before we start doing that, I just want to talk about a couple of points items that are important for the reading. The first off is the temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is historically in the Old Testament where God dwells among his people. Remember, it's it's this, it's the stone version of the tabernacle with two rooms. One is the holy place where, uh, where the priests do some of their work go about some of their tasks, and the inner sanctum is called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies, and that is the room where God has dwelt on earth with his people in the Old Testament. Now, at the end of the Old Testament, the temple is destroyed, and the temple at the time of Jesus' incarnation has been constructed by Herod and is actually still under construction after 40 years. And if you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. He clears out the money changers and the the animal merchants. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders ask him for a sign of why he has authority to do this. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. And they say it's taken 40 years to build this temple. How can you raise it up in three days? And then John adds this little parenthetical remark, but the temple he was talking about was his body. So while we normally think of the temple as a, as a building, the temple is where God dwells on earth with his people. So in the Old Testament, Solomon built 
a temple where God dwelt, a building. At the start of Luke, Mary is the temple for nine months because she is where God dwells among men as Jesus is developing in her womb. And then when Jesus is born as God in the flesh, he is the temple walking around among the people. So we'll have a couple of temple references later on in this text. I wanted to bring that out now. The other thing to mention here that will come up again and again in the reading of of the passion of Jesus from Matthew is the idea of the kingdom of God. Normally when we think of kings and kingdoms, we think of glory and power. So the big kingdom at the time of, of Jesus' incarnation is the Roman Empire. It's governed by Caesar, this glorious ruler who's enthroned in Rome. The kingdom is is controlled and ruled with power, with the Roman armies, with the Roman legions, with with Roman law and punishment of evildoers. And so normally when we think of kings and kings, we think of powerful rulers enforcing their laws with force, even brute force. The kingdom of God is different. Although God is far more powerful than Caesar, he brings people into his kingdom not by conquering them with a sword, but by shedding his own blood to bring them into his kingdom. So the kingdoms of man are about power and and might and and, and bloodshed of, of, of your enemies, The kingdom of God is about gathering people in by God's own sacrifice to save sinners. So where you expect an earthly king to act with with force, God as king acts with sacrifice and mercy. With those two things in mind, the temple and the kingdom, on then to this look at Matthew chapter 27. We pick it up after Jesus has been arrested at Gethsemane, after he's been on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Jews. They've condemned him to death, but they can't execute him because that privilege, the privilege of capital punishment, is reserved by the Romans for themselves. So if Jesus is to die, they have to convince the local governor, Pontius Pilate, to have him put to death. Now, Pilate might be their Roman ruler, but Pilate is an amazingly weak and ineffective ruler, and so they can kind of push him around. And so they present Jesus to Pilate, and although Pilate doesn't want to put Jesus to death, they're still going to talk him into doing it anyways. So we pick this up at Matthew 27, verse 11, as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and we read, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, 
So the governor was greatly amazed. So the accusation against Jesus before Pilate is that he claims to be the king of the Jews. And that charge should stick and get Jesus put to death because to claim to be king is to claim that Caesar is not your king. And in Roman law, that's the crime of treason. And treason is punishable by death. So the charge against Jesus by, by the leaders of the Jews is that he's, he's guilty of treason against Caesar by claiming to be the king of the Jews. So when Pilate the governor asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? What is your plea? Jesus' response is, you have said so. So there's some irony here. On the one hand, Jesus confirms that the charge against him is that he is the king of the Jews without saying whether or not he is. And on the other hand, it's, it's, it's perfectly true that Jesus is the king of the Jews because he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the son of King David and the son of the Most High who will rule over his people forever, as the prophecies have stated. But all that said, Jesus is not guilty of treason against Caesar because he's not a rival to Caesar. Jesus is not there to conquer land and wrest the city of Rome away from the Roman ruler. He's there to gather people into the kingdom of heaven by his mercy and grace. So when Pilate asks him for his plea, Jesus is kind of ambiguous with his answer. When Jesus is accused of the chief priests and elders of all sorts of sins and all sorts of crimes, he has nothing to say. He remains silent. Now, if an innocent man is accused of things he hasn't done, the normal reaction is for him to defend himself and say, I didn't do that. But Jesus takes all the accusations and remains silent about them. Why? Because even though he is innocent of all of these accusations, he is bearing all the sins of all the world to the cross. So every time he's accused of wrongdoing, he just accepts it silently, takes it on his shoulders to take it to the cross. So for instance, if, if they accuse Jesus of murder. He doesn't defend himself, not because he's guilty of murder, but because he's bearing the sin of murder for all murderers to the cross to die in their place. And so as he suffers all these accusations, he suffers them silently to bear them to his death that sinners might be forgiven. All right, we move on to the next portion, uh, verses 15 through 23. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him 
have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Now, verse 15 notes that this is at the feast. This is at the feast of the Passover when all this takes place. And of course, the Passover is a remembrance that in Egypt... The Israelites were saved because the lamb was, was sacrificed. Its blood was spread on the doorpost, and the angel passed over um, those homes and spared those inside. And, of course, Jesus is going to be the Passover lamb whose blood is shed so that we are spared from death for our sin. The, uh, the Passover is especially a big theme I think the most in the Gospel of John, but here at least it merits mention as we go through this text. Pilate has a tradition to kind of um, show goodwill to, to the Jews. At the time of the Passover, he releases one prisoner condemned to death. And this is his strategy to get Jesus released. He gives them a choice. They can either have Barabbas or they can have Jesus pardoned, and set free to live among them. Now, we know from the Gospel of John that Barabbas is an insurrectionist. While the leaders have accused Jesus of being a traitor and rebel against Rome, Barabbas is the real deal. He doesn't claim to be king, but he has already led violent insurrections and rebellions against um, against Caesar and against the Roman Empire. That's why he's scheduled to be put to death. So Pilate kind of cleverly puts it to the crowd. I'll give you a choice. I'll release either Barabbas or Jesus. Who do you want living in your neighborhood? The man Jesus who, you know, makes the blind see, the deaf hear, who heals the lepers and, and, and provides miraculous food for the hungry? Or do you prefer Barabbas, who is probably going to like scheme and plot all the more to overthrow Caesar until my troops have to come in and destroy him and you and the rest of your neighborhood? The answer is obvious. Who should they call for um, pardon? They should call for Jesus to be pardoned. But instead, they call for the release of Barabbas. And so Barabbas is pardoned, and Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion. Now, on the one hand, this just shows the, the evil of the sinful nature. That even though it makes total sense to release Jesus, the miracle worker, and the healer over this violent, murdering insurrectionist, the people call for the death of God because sinners want God out of the way. But there's something else going on here. The name Barabbas, Bar-Abba, means son of the father. And Barabbas is completely guilty of what he's been accused of. But he is pardoned. Why? 
Because the only begotten Son of the Father, the innocent one, is sentenced to die in his place. And as Barabbas, the son of the Father, is pardoned because Jesus, the son of the Father, dies in his place, so you and I are pardoned for our sins because Jesus has died in our place too. The next portion then is verses 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, the trial of Jesus before Pilate is extended in the Gospel of John. And so there you see how much Pilate does not want to put Jesus to death. As the judge, he declares Jesus not guilty no less than three times before the crowd. And the Gospel of John, it seems he even has Jesus scourged not to make him suffer more, but to make him look so pitiful that the crowds will call for his life to be spared. Pilate does not want to be responsible for the death of Jesus. And here that is summed up with a short section where when Pilate sees that it's either he or Jesus who suffers that day, He opts that Jesus suffers, and so he says to the crowd, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And the people answer him, his blood be on us and on our children, which is, in this case, chilling. Because these people are saying, we don't believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and so we are willing to take responsibility for his death. And if we're wrong, well, then God can judge us and our children for what we do this day. It's, it's just horrible how they, how they are willing to curse themselves if Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be. But again, there's irony in this statement because while they take responsibility for putting, putting God to death, as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, We rejoice that Christ's blood is, in fact, upon us. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. So because of their unbelief, they were willing to say, let his blood be on us and upon our children. We'll take responsibility. On the other hand, as believers, we say, yes, let his blood be on us and upon our children. We want to be cleansed of our sin by the death of Jesus Christ. Next section then is verses 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. 
And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The scene inside the governor's headquarters is is ironic and horrifying. It's ironic because if a king is coronated, when he is crowned, you'd expect certain things to happen. His soldiers, his troops would line up to pay him respect. And as part of the ceremony, he would be put on his throne. He would be crowned with his crown to show his authority. They would place a royal robe upon him. And they would put a scepter in his hand to acknowledge that he is the one who rules. So what we have in, in verses 27 through 31 is a mockery of a coronation. The troops line up not to show Jesus respect, but to abuse him. They put a scarlet robe on him, which is a terribly torturous thing to do for someone whose back has just been scourged. They put a crown on his head, but it's a crown of thorns to inflict further pain. And they put a reed in his hand as a fake scepter before they take it out of his hand and beat him with it. The whole point of this mockery of a coronation is because the charge against Jesus is that he is the king of the Jews. And so the soldiers demonstrate that Jesus is no king at all, no threat to Caesar at all. But again, remember the kingdom of God works differently than the kingdom of man. Jesus does not gather people into his kingdom by conquering them with a sword and shedding their blood. He gathers people into his kingdom by his suffering, by his bloodshed. So as the soldiers make a mockery of Jesus to say that he is no king, Jesus is actually acting like he always does to gather people into his kingdom. A couple of notes about this mockery of a coronation. First off, it's a scarlet robe. Um, Scarlet was a color of the very wealthy and of royalty because scarlet dye was so difficult to get a hold of. In fact, there were two sources of of scarlet dye in in, um, the first century. One was from a certain kind of mussel, like a clam that could be dug out of the Mediterranean. I'm told if you go to the shores of the Mediterranean, you can still find stacks of the shells of the shellfish um, from the harvest of, of of the mussel's blood. The, the other source was a certain kind of worm that you could find, and if you crushed enough of the worms, you could get enough scarlet dye, enough of the worm's blood, to, to make um, scarlet clothing. Um, the reason I bring this up is, is one, this, um, this robe is made from, from, um, from the blood of, of creatures 
that are, are killed to create it. And the second is in Psalm 22, this, which is a, a prophecy of the crucifixion, the psalmist says, I am a worm and no man. And the word there for worm in Hebrew is in fact this worm that can be crushed for scarlet colored blood. So as this, as this worm is crushed to create robes, um, so Jesus is, is crushed as it were, his blood is shed so that we might be robed in his righteousness. The other is, is the crown of thorns is not only not gold, it's not only, only terribly painful to have jammed on your head, but remember that in Genesis 3, God declares that thorns are a sign of the curse of sin. So as Jesus wears this, this crown of thorns jammed on his head by the soldiers, it's a visual reminder that he bears sin and all of its curse to the cross so that we can be delivered. All right, the coronation over, the soldiers have had their... Their horrific fun, if you will. And the next section is verses 32 to 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. All right, so on the way to Golgotha, where Jesus is crucified, they compel another, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. So Jesus is apparently weak enough where he cannot do it for himself. He declines to drink wine mixed with gall, which would um, take away some of the pain. He is not there to avoid suffering. He is there to, to suffer in our place. When Jesus is crucified, they divide his garments, his garments by casting lots, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. And they sit down to watch him, keep watch over him while he is dying. And of course, the charge is there. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is, is, is the charges above his head. 
There's a mention here in verse 38 that, that the two robbers are crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. These two robbers are also, in the Greek, they're insurrectionists. They too, like Barabbas, have, have rebelled against Rome. They are truly guilty of treason. So they are, they are violent men, not just um, specialty second-story burglars or something like that. Um, it's interesting that, that Matthew notes that they are, they are crucified, one on Jesus' right and one on his left, because back in Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and, and says, hey, I, I want you to do something for me. And he, he says, uh, what do you wish? And she says, I would like my sons to be at your left and your right in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And again, um, in, in, in kingdoms of this world, you imagine a king glorious and enthroned, surrounded by wealth and power, and the guys as left and right are his top advisors. Well, here is Jesus on his throne in this world, which is a cross, wearing his crown of thorns. And that's not what the mother of James and John had in mind. When Jesus is enthroned, He's surrounded by, by sinners, by, by these insurrectionists, one on his right and one on his left, which is what James and John's mother asked for, but didn't know what she was asking. The focus, though, in Matthew during Jesus' crucifixion is upon the mockery of the crowd below. Those who pass by say of Jesus, or say to Jesus, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Remember, in John chapter 2, people thought that Jesus was saying that he would destroy the temple and build it in three days, whereas Jesus said that he is the temple who would die and rise again. So here they feel secure that Jesus can't destroy the temple because he's being put to death. But in his crucifixion, the temple is being destroyed and it will rise again because he will rise again on the third day. That's ironic. This is poignant. The chief priests and scribes and elders mock Jesus by saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. The point of the crucifixion is that Jesus could save himself. But he saves others, you and me included, by not saving himself. Because he bears our sins to the cross, because he suffers God's wrath for our sins, we are now forgiven and we have his grace and his mercy and eternal life. We move on then to verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In the Gospel of Matthew, of the seven last words of Jesus, you only get one of them. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. And this pairs with the mockery of the scribes and elders and chief priests just before. Why does Jesus not come down from the cross? Because he is being, he is suffering in our place. He is suffering God's abandonment in our place. Jesus cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first verse of Psalm 22 declaring that he is forsaken by his Father because he bears our sins. And because Jesus is forsaken by his Father as he takes our sins away, God will not forsake us because our sins are taken away. The great comfort of Jesus' cry of dereliction, as it's called from the cross, is because he is forsaken on the cross, you will never be forsaken by God for the sake of his Son. Jesus dies, and then we read in verses 51 to 54, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. So this is a, a, a short passage where we want to know so much more who were these saints who rose from the dead when Jesus died and rose? And, and, and what did they say when they went into the city? And, and what happened to them after they went into the city? Are they still wandering around? Did they, they live a while longer than die again? We, we simply don't know. What we do know as, as this earthquake takes place when Jesus dies is that the, the, temple, in the, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, it's, it's a tall curtain, so the fact that it's torn from top to bottom means it's, it's, not, it's not man who's doing the tearing because they have to get some huge ladders to do so. Rather, this is God tearing it from top to bottom. And that curtain exposes the Holy of Holies. It might be a temple building, but God is not inside. Why? Because Jesus is God, and Jesus is the temple, and now he has been put to death. Now he is dead. And so the tomb where he's about to be laid is about to be more of a temple for three days, because that's where God is. Whereas the temple is empty, God is not there. And God will not return to dwell in the Holy of Holies, because... Christ will rise from the dead and dwell with his people in his word and in his sacraments. So there's an earthquake. The temple is 
curtain is torn, um, the saints who have fallen asleep arise. But meanwhile, the centurion and those with him, when the earthquake takes place, they, they say, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, even with the earthquakes, the special effects, as we might say, it's really quite a statement of faith to say, this was the Son of God about a man who's just breathed his last and died. And this is actually seen as a confession of faith. Who would look at a dead man on a cross and say, this was the Son of God? Well, you and I look at Jesus crucified and say, that's God dying for us. And we rejoice also that he is risen again. And so as the centurion voices here, and as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, we continue to preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. With that then, our text starts to draw to a close. Verses 55 through 56, there, was also, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So this is setting up the women who, who witness Jesus' death and where he'll be laid in the tomb so they can go and find him find the tomb empty, rather, on the last day. And then we read in verses 57 through 61, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So Jesus is laid to rest in a new tomb. There are no other bodies inside. And this tomb, by the way, is in a garden, we know from the other Gospels. So as God created the first Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden, so the second Adam, Jesus, who dies for the sins of the first, um, he is laid to rest in the garden, and it's there that he'll rise again on the third day. And then our reading closes out with uh, verses 62 to 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So that'll do it. Jesus said he'd rise again on the third day. And a guard is placed in to make sure it doesn't happen. Well, good luck with that because it's not the disciples stealing the body away. 
But Jesus, as prophesied, rises again on the third day for us and for our salvation. I am way over time for a half-hour podcast already. I hope that targeting some moments in the Passion of Jesus is helpful for you. Um, God bless you and your further meditations upon this text. Um, God grant you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. A blessed Holy Week to you. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.